Welcome to Hope Ahead, where we share stories of help and hope for people facing addiction and mental health challenges right here in our community. Hope Ahead is brought to you by the Virtue Center, and I'm your host, Caleb Klusmeyer. Welcome to Hope Ahead. My name is Caleb Klusmeyer, along with Carol Bauman, uh, my co-host. As and today we have Elena Velasquez. Elena, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, my name is Elena Velasquez, um, and I am a mother of a five and a half year old girl. I am an LPN, and I work at a detox unit, and go to school full time to get my RN. So. The reason I thought it would be interesting to have you on is, yes, you work in a detox center, but also you have a couple of different perspectives as far as addiction or alcoholism because it's kind of touched your family in a lot of different ways. Do you want to kind of, I guess, just dive in and tell us a little bit about that? Um, sure. So both sides of my family have been uh, very affected by addiction um, on my mom's side and my dad's side. I pretty much don't have a cousin that hasn't been affected by it. Um, Cousins, aunts, uncles, everybody. Um, And so there's been a lot of challenges that came through having addiction. Um, Emotional challenges um, between like me and siblings and things like that. Uh, Physical challenges, financial challenges. Um, struggling growing up, lots of like abuse, um, different just dangerous situations and things that occurred um, due to addiction being so spread out through my family. So are you planning on continuing to work? So you mentioned that you work in a, a detox unit now. So are you planning on continuing to work in, you know, the field in that in that sense? Or are you planning to transition to just specifically medically? Um, so originally uh, through nursing school, my plan has been uh, to end up in the ER. I went through I went through the detox center um, as a student and one of the people offered me a job and the night before I went to the detox unit, I was not looking forward to it at all just because I had been around like certain, you know, family members whenever they were detoxing and it wasn't very fun and it could be a little bit scary. Um, so I was kind of freaked out and didn't want to go and had, you know, mixed perceptions um, of what addiction was um, because when you grow up in it, um, you kind of tie in that addiction with that person. And I feel like the, that get, that gets mixed in. And so you're kind of like, these people are like this. And you have like a view of what, you know, addicts are like. And so I was like, I don't want to work with a bunch of people like that every day. Um, and then I went in there and my perspective like completely changed. Um, I watched like the respect that they treated these people with. And I watched how like it was a big family almost. Um, And it was just filled with like encouragement and hope and like just like everything was just really, it was really awesome to see. Um, 
and then just seeing people come in a certain way and leave another way, like complete different people. Um, and then thinking about like my own family, um, like I have a sister who is um, a heroin addict. And anytime, like if I were to think about her going somewhere, I would hope that she would have people that would treat her as good as these people treated them. And so when I got offered the job, I took it. And since working there, I fell in love with it. Um, I love every side of that job. And I, I used to think I just kind of like looked at what both sides, what I loved from both sides and what I hated from both sides. And I made like a happy medium. But I feel like now um, that you know, that's not anything different than what my siblings or someone else would have done. They, and so I don't really know because, you know, they don't, they don't have a reason why people don't get addicted to things. Right. And so I'd like to think it was, you know, morals or thinking or anything like that, but it really doesn't have to do with morals or thinking, you know. And as a child, it's like, Living in that black and white world, you would think, okay, it's either this or that, so that might be easier to navigate, but I think it might be the opposite because I don't want to say like you're torn, but wouldn't that just really turn up the confusion? Like, okay, with this side, it's this way. With this side, it's that way. Where do I fit in? What's right? What's wrong? Um, and then to ultimately come out and have a direction for yourself I think is really impressive. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm just very big in you being responsible for, like, you know, you can't control any situation in your life, but you can control your response to it. And so that's been my main focus in life. And the main thing that's kept me going is just not letting what's going on on the outside change who I am on the inside and making sure that my response to things is appropriate. Can, oh, sorry, did you, did you mention that you were in the military? Yes, I okay. was in the Navy. Can you talk about that? What brought you to that? Um, yeah, so um, my whole life I had wanted to go to the military. And so when I was 17, um, I had my parents sign me off to the military and I was in there for three and a half years um, I ended up getting medically discharged for PTSD. Um, and so I left from there. Um, but that was like my dream job. I absolutely loved it. I got to go to a million different countries. So, Did you have an influence that made you want to sign up? Or was um, that all on your own? No, I had an obsession with it since like second grade. <laughs> like I used to watch the History Channel and... Yeah, I was a weird little kid, played with, like, G.I. Joes, and that's what I wanted to do, so. Awesome. So, and a lot of what, we, what we're seeking out of with Hope Ahead is to kind of get into that, like, the nitty-gritty, like, details, because we believe there's such a stigma, and you kind of were, like, hitting on it with whether you choose to consciously or subconsciously engage in the stigma there is a stigma you know and like um and the things that come what with what alcoholism and s substance use disorder looks like um you know and the behaviors that the symptoms the behaviors that come with that and um i want you to kind of um i guess talk about like 
some of the things, I guess, with your family, if you're comfortable with it, and just kind of, like, the emotions and, like, the struggles and, like, how hard it's been to, like, navigate and um, whether it's emotionally or, like, whatever. Okay. Um, so, uh, obviously, the closest one to me is my sister. Um, so, growing up with her... When I was really young, um, you don't see the full problems of everything. And so it was a lot like I would see some like certain attitudes and like behaviors where we're sleeping all the time, we're angry, we're yelling, we're crying. And so I just always was like, man, like she needs to chill out. She's kind of unstable, (laughs) you know. Um, And then I saw like a fun partying um, side to her and that part, I think, like, you know, as a teenager, even though I was older, like, was kind of, like, something to be jealous of, you know what I mean? Like, she had all these friends, and she was just constantly, like, super happy and partying and all that, and so there was that side, Um, but then as we got older, starting to see her, like, fall off on things, like, all of a sudden, she's not holding a job, and all of a sudden, you know, she's ending up in jail and, you know, different things like that. It was hard seeing um, just a beautiful light and the potential just going downhill and dropping things one after another. Um, And then the hardest part probably came after she had a child and she had been sober for a little bit. Um, She ends up losing custody. The dad ends up losing custody. parents are involved raising, the grandparents are involved helping to foster. Um, But then seeing this child go through like so many dangerous positions, Um, answering a phone and at like two or three years old and like asking like, where's mama? And him saying like, mama's sleeping, mama's sleeping for, you know, a couple hours and you don't know like where she is and you don't know who's taking care of him and things like that. Like it was really hard. And then I went through an anger stage with it um, where I eventually stopped talking to her for about eight months because I was so angry that she could do this to a kid. Like having kids myself at this point, I'm like, you know, like you're choosing that over your kid. Like, what are you doing? And so I stopped talking to her and then I uh, got a call one night that she was uh, on life support in the ICU um, due to an overdose and that they didn't have any brain activity. So that took us to like just extreme grief for the first time in my life. I was like, I'm not going to have this sister. Like, I'm not, how do you not have a sister anymore? And I was up at the hospital with the entire family and just watched an entire family, maybe 20, 30 people in the waiting room, just crying and hugging each other and, you know, praying. And it's a, it's been a lot of emotions, a lot of emotions. What happened? Um, she ended up pulling out of it and, uh, she got brain activity and she left from the hospital. Um, she is still actively struggling with addiction Um, So she's um, not really living anywhere, and we have very minimal contact with her at this time. So you were kind of talking a little bit about the the strain it kind of put on 
the whole family. And, like, that's one of the things at the Virtue Center that we really like to educate people on. And, like, I don't know if educate people on is the right phrase to use or terminology. Um, uh, but just it's important to look at how this whole thing affects everyone. You know, um, it's not just the person using. We all know that those of us who have had a family member or been in it, you know, um, we can sit there and try to believe this delusion that it doesn't, but uh, it really does. And you were kind of talking about how uh, your parents had to take take charge of raising the kid, and I can only imagine the strain it had on your mom and all this stuff. Can you kind of, uh, I guess talk a little bit about what what she was going through or what it seemed like she was going through um so who ended up actually um taking care of him uh was my dad and my sister's mom so my stepmom you know it had a strain on their marriage you know having one person's kid both of their kids but one biological kid stuck in this addiction and that heart of a mom where she's just constantly going after her and doing everything for her and trying to rescue her kid. And then there's a stepdad that loves the kid, but is also like, Hey, this is taken away from all our other kids. This is tearing apart our marriage. Like this is a grown person. She's doing what she wants. You have to let her go. And so there was a lot of marriage, marital strain there. Um, You know, them having to switch their whole house around, put locks on the garages and the inside of the garages and switch up codes and codes on their rooms, you know, to get into their rooms because they couldn't risk um, someone breaking in, someone stealing things, them going from grandparents with fully raised kids of their own. Now all of a sudden they're stepping into taking care of this little boy. And I want to say he was about three to five years old at the time. Um, and I did watch a lot because now my stepmom was caught in between her daughter and her grandkid. Yeah. And that was probably the worst I saw is that she was constantly having to deprive her daughter of her daughter's son and step in between them and protect the grandson from the daughter. Um, and that was hard because then she's trying not to lose that relationship with her own daughter, but she has this little boy who needs protection it's such a i mean you like explained like what we hear so often here like to a t like just the the strain it has on the whole family you know and i don't know if you've ever heard of the dysfunctional family roles and like how you know you got the scapegoat you got the family mascot you got the hero and like um you know the chief enabler and all these people without knowing take you know take on these roles to essentially like survive and kind of they all feed off of each other and it all comes from a lot of times there's there's this one source you know and with substance use disorder <clears throat> it's it's usually you know the user and the enabler just keeps it going and it's such a hard thing i've i've been on both sides of that fence i've been the user <laughs> and then um I've also been the enabler in a situation. Um, and it's it's so hard whenever you're in that yourself to, you know, cut the umbilical cord, so to speak, and be like, no, 
we're not doing this, you know, and because you do love them and you don't want them to suffer. And like you were saying, it's like with your mom, like it's, it's really hard to let that go and just let them go. They're going to do, they're grown. They're going to do what they're going to do. We can't change that. And kind of what you mentioned before, you know, not letting outside, uh, circumstances outside dictate who you are inside dictate who you are inside and I think that's you know important in recovery and to me that is like recovery in general like being able to walk through uncomfortable uncomfortable situations and not have to use or you know substances drink or you know get high um so the next thing I want to get into is well I guess you kind of touched a little bit about it uh, earlier, but like, um, how has, how has your own, ex- how has working in a detox and then your own experiences played off of each other? Like changed your perspective? So, um, so working at the detox center, um, one, I have come to learn and I'm still learning, uh, to, drop the old views of substance abuse being a moral issue and to really realize that substance abuse, it is a disease and it is a disease that happens to someone and it's not something that they went out to choose, even though you may um, attribute that with certain risks that people would take. Um, I'm learning the science of it. I'm learning, um, the spiritual parts of it, the mental parts of it, the physical parts of it. And that has been just really interesting uh, to learn. And then I'm making connections with these people. And uh, I think really just meeting with them, talking with them, living with them for five days, like you grow these connections with them and you connect with them and you see that they're the same as you. that just one little thing went different, but you could easily be them and they could easily be you. Um, so. What do you think some of those one little things went different? Like just in general, what what are some examples of that? Because I, that's so true. Like we're all kind of on this path and you go this way and somebody goes that way. Yeah. Like why? What, what happened? I mean, life like life happens and like bad things happen and you're like you're going along and a tragedy happens and then like everybody hits that moment of despair and then at that point everyone searches for like what they're gonna do to get out of this moment of despair and it really comes down to like what resources are available to you what education has been put into you and what support you and have. what support you have, finances, like all of that plays into it. Um, and yeah, so it, what ends up being available, what comes to your rescue first? Do you find a lot of times um, just getting to know the people in there that most of it is because of lack of support? Like we talked about circumstances um, and a lot of times we're a victim of our own circumstances and so what are those circumstances? Is it lack of family support? Um, is it that, you know, they come from a, a broken home? Um, they've lost a job, a relationship issue, um, chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Um, just is there one that stands out more than the other? 
I mean, there's all of it. Like you say that, and I just have faces flashing mm-hmm. in my head of just different people that like my heart is just connected with um, everywhere from, you know, some motor vehicle type accident became a paraplegic, you know, got prescribed opioids, became a fentanyl addict, you know, and other ones. And what's crazy about that is how incredibly tragic and um, awful and intense as that is, is like, who wouldn't become addicted to opioids? I mean, medical uh, pain. You see that a lot with pain. Mental health and pain in general are the number two reasons I would say um, that I see. So pain, absolutely. They, they get hurt like tragically, you know, dirt bike accident, motor vehicle accident, things like that. They break a few bones. Um, they're put on Percocets and then they run out. They're not going to refill them. So they turn to their family, see if their family has any pain meds available. If their family doesn't have any pain meds available, they go to their friends. They and go at to that the point, street. it's like not so much about addressing the pain. It's about addressing this now addiction. Well, I mean, I mean, it starts as a need. It starts right. as like a need for their pain. And then, you know, depending on what they find, and then it becomes an addiction before they realize it. Um, so yeah, pain's a big one. Mental health, you know, most people, they'll just break down and cry. And like, I just can't sleep. Like something as little as sleep, like I just can't sleep. And that's why I'm doing this, you know, or I'm just, I'm just so sad. And they lost their son. They lost a family member, even if it was to addiction, like so many of them. Like, you see some like in everything that you just, both of you just <clears throat> talked about was like, no matter what the reason is, they're looking for a solution, okay. and like that's that's what a lot of um, what well, one particular. Uh, program of recovery that comes to mind um you know they believe it's a a three-part disease like a spiritual disease um uh the mental obsession a spiritual malady um and that i'm sorry i just completely forgot the last one but it's mind body and spirit is basically what they're talking about and um it's interesting because their thing is like we have to find a new solution. And so, like, drugs and alcohol are my solution, but it's a solution that doesn't work very well. So, obviously, someone is getting something out of it. Um, and, and you know, we've talked about this before on other episodes, but we have to find a new solution because the solution is making us, like, destroying our lives, destroying the people's lives around us. Um, I can't hold a job. I can't, you know, if you use like anything like I did, you know, you'll be homeless in a matter of weeks, you know what I mean? And you'll, it's, you just burn everything to a ground. It's a destructive solution. Yeah, it's a destructive solution. And then on top of that, it's like you go to jail. Yeah. And then... You now we're just, adding criminal charges yes, to it. And, and then, you know, it's wasting so much money and they're not getting help, yeah. and then now they don't have a license, so they can't go back to having a job, right. or they lost their car, and they have these fines, so now they're homeless. And what else do they have to do at this point? <laughs> it's a nightmare of the domino effect. 
Yeah, and uh, a lot of times I, I mention this too is like it's like this cycle, and you see um, trauma seems to be a huge uh, a huge thing that plays into substance use disorder, and there's a lot of research that supports that. But um, you know, um, that's why we have things like the ACEs study. Um, and for those of you who are listening and don't know what that is, it stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. So it's um, traumas that happen to you before the age of 18. And um, not necessarily saying that you're doomed, um, but like some risk factors, some things you might want to, you know, not, you know, you might want to make healthier choices because you may be more at risk. You're um, vulnerable. To things like addiction and alcoholism, you know, and, and things like that. And so um, there's a lot of different things that come into play. Um, but anyways. Um, and you said that that was like the number two reason. What what do you feel like the number one reason is? Really, it's just, it's all tied in. It's It's definitely mental health, number one, I would say. Mental health, um, trauma, pain. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, a lot of these people are even born into it. You know, they were born as babies with, um, you know. And I think a lot, you know, when we talk about smashing the stigma and changing the way people view it, we have to change the the face of addiction. What does that person look like? And I always grew up thinking it was the homeless person, mm-hmm. the criminal, um, and that it, it is so much more than that. And it's convincing people that don't understand it that it could be your um, very well-to-do neighbor. It could be your physician. It could be your pastor. It could be yeah. a teacher. Um, we that, get lawyers in there. Absolutely. You know, attorneys, um, very medical. successful business um, individuals. And so it's like changing the poster child of addiction. And I feel like that is so much of what it's going to take to get people to really pause and look at it and be like, oh, okay, this is not something I can just say, well, that's not me because I'm not a criminal, I'm not homeless, you know, I'm right. married, I've got a good family, I have a successful business. And it's like, no, actually, <laughs> you're just as vulnerable as anybody else. Um, so it's like changing that perception and the conversation that exists around it. Um, and in your work, do you see... Um, any of that being done? Um, yeah, I, I do. Um, I mean, in general, uh, at my job, they're really good about um, making it not about a person. Like, nothing is cookie cutter with addiction. There's no certain person um, or face or social class or solution you know there's a million different therapies out there um, for people that are being affected with a substance use disorder and not one of them will work for every single person right like a lot of times i'll compare it to um cancer Mm -hmm. the disease i mean that knows no boundaries some people chemo to everybody right some people are more vulnerable than others because of genetics or or habits but i mean there are definitely people that get that cancer diagnosis and it completely you know shocks them and um it has that ripple, ripple effect on the whole family the extended family as well and so it's like okay if we can look at it in that model 
you know, then can we change that perception yeah. that we looks something similar to that? Drug therapist that is very focused. I, he just breaks down everything in the brain and like the different neurotransmitters and um, just you know the behaviors the thinking the cognitive like every different side of addiction and he's and they're really realizing that it's not about the person in general it's not about the person um there's a lot more going on there scientifically physically emotionally spiritually mentally um and so just taking that face that we have in our heads about what addiction looks like and getting rid of that i think that that's going to be the biggest step to making things better. I just I just thought of it. It's the spiritual malady, the mental obsession, and the physical allergy. <laughs> physical it, allergy? Yeah. So, like, the thing behind that is, like, it's interesting because a lot of clients that I do, like, screenings on, <clears throat> they're like, oh, I don't drink that much or whatever. You know, we'll go over things and, like, oh, yeah. What about alcohol? You drank alcohol in the last two years? They're like, yeah, but I'm not really, like, that's not my thing, you know what I mean? And, like, well, when was the last time you drank? Like, yeah, a couple days ago, and, like, okay, well, how much do you normally drink whenever you drink? And, like, oh, I don't know, like, uh, I usually drink as, you know, as much as I buy or whatever, and it's, and it's just, it's, like, there are so many different types of, like, alcoholics can look like, a lot of different things you got the the binge drinker you know the the under the bridge homeless guy who just will scrape together change to go get a bottle or whatever and then you've got the person who can stop for a while but once they start they can't stop and they're gonna drink as much as they have on hand you know <laughs> um so that can look like a lot of different things and that's what the, the physical allergy is like when i stop i can't when i start i can't stop that's what the phys- physical allergy is pertaining to. I feel like alcohol is a pretty, um, a pretty hard one. It's, it's, uh, you know, before working at the detox center, I was like so focused on substance use, like heroin yeah. and, and opiates and things like that. Um, and then finding out that alcohol was actually the deadliest and most dangerous thing nice. to detox off of. And, and then looking at it and being like, this is something that's completely legal. Mm-hmm. Like we were, I was sitting actually with the patients and it just so happened to be our alcohol users. And we were watching the Super Bowl together. And it was like just commercial after commercial after commercial of alcohol. And it just made me like look at it in a way that I never have. Like it was hard because seeing these guys' reactions, like one just got really, really quiet. And, you know, the other one was kind of engaging back and forth, talking to the commercials. Um, But just knowing, like, that it's completely legal. So, like, you can go into your job and say, like, hey, I drank all yesterday. And they're not going to blink an eye. They're like, okay. And it's so easy to get wrapped up in a problem with alcoholism Mm -hmm. um, and it being okay. Yeah, it's, like, socially acceptable to have drinks. It's not to sit there. Unless you get in a motor vehicle accident and kill Mm -hmm. someone. Right. Then it's okay. Then it's not okay. And yeah, hmm. and we and we get that too there, mm-hmm. and it's it's wild. Yeah, it is. When you it's it's interesting when we put it like that. We're like, dang, but like, yeah, alcohol is one of the most 
you know, addictive and dangerous substances to come yeah. off of, especially, but like, it's, you know, like you wouldn't want to go and into we know work. it and we promote it like yeah. even to families, yeah. like it's, it's wild. Just think about if you said shot a bunch of heroin all exactly. weekend, and like, <laughs> like what? Exactly. <laughs> you know? like, uh, I went out to the bar with my friends drinking all mm-hmm. weekend. Like, There's a complete difference in judgment yeah. there. Yeah. What would you say is, you know, somebody coming in willingly and not willingly? Because, you know, there's that same um, situation that goes in with getting help um, in the mental health world, too. Um, some people willingly go and seek help, get help, and others are, are forced to. So in our facility, um, we are an all-voluntary facility, However, um, so we've had issues still with people sneaking in drugs and, you know, inventing ways to do things up there. And so I wondered the same thing. I was like, these people are here voluntarily. Then why are they sneaking things in? Um, And so although they are allowed, they all come in voluntarily. If people have court or they're about to lose a child or something like that, a lot of times they will, quote unquote, voluntarily go in to look good on paper but they're not ready to quit. Right. Um, and it's really unfortunate because then what that does is that breaks a hole in the safety net that we have there for people who are there wanting to quit, you know, um, that they have, they could easily relapse right. um, due to that. But I guess the thing down at it is if they are not doing it willingly and they're not wholehearted, like wholeheartedly in it, it's not going to work. Um, and so until it is a hundred percent voluntary, like that person's in charge of their own decisions and they're not going to be able to make it and get clean until it, they're voluntary. What does a typical day look like for somebody who voluntarily comes to get help? What is that? Can you walk us yeah. through that? So uh, they come in, we go ahead and screen them. We ask them all of their different questions, what they use, how much they use, when they last used it. Um, that's because we're going to give them medicine. Certain ones will throw them into precipitated withdrawals if we do it too quickly. Um, and so we need to know for that. We need to know what they use and how they use it so we can know what things to draw from their blood. Um, we'll check for like HIV, uh, hepatitis, all of those things in people that um, inject anything or IVUs, Um, we get them, we check out their vital signs, get their home meds, get everything that they take, ask them about medical disorders um, so that we can kind of estimate what problems we may or may not have during detox. Um, We ask about their emotional state, mental state. And then we, basically what we do is we just keep them comfortable and we keep them medically safe during their detox. So Usually the first two days they're sleeping uh, nonstop almost. After that, they'll kind of start interacting a little bit more with you. And we really just every couple hours do rounds on them, give them medicines um, to help keep them from having to deal with withdrawal symptoms. And I think that that really helps open their open the doors up to being able to get help and better, like get better faster because they're not dealing with the physical effects. We always make sure to let them know like that they're not there for punishment. So if they're hurting, if there's something going on, you know, if they're cramping, if they're feeling restless, if they're having anxiety, if they're not sleeping, like come let us know 
we want to get you something for that. You know, you're, you're doing the right thing. You're here doing the right thing. And we don't want you to suffer. You're not on punishment. You know, don't punish yourself. Don't let yourself feel like you need to suffer because this is right. where your choice is. Don't be ashamed. Yeah. And we just, we hang out with them all day. We'll watch TV with them, puzzles, you know, games, um, just talk with them, get to know them. We do different, they do five, um, counseling sessions a day or five rehab sessions a day. Um, and then we get them hooked up with different sources, uh, outpatient, inpatient, and send them on their way. So they're equipped when they leave yes. to continue their journey on recovery. Yeah. We set them up with a primary care appointment so they can follow up. We set them up um, if they're doing like Suboxone, we'll set them up with an appointment at a clinic. Uh, if they're going to go to rehab, we really try to get them bed to bed, which is where we transfer straight from one facility to another um, to lessen their chances of getting home and relapsing. And we um, set them with outpatient resources, mental health resources, suicide line, all of that. So what's the average stay from what you see? Uh, typically five days is going to be your average stay. Um, depends on your insurance. And it's hard because a lot of families and patients um, are begging us to stay. They're like, five days isn't enough. Like, But that's all that they give you to medically detox off of um, right. insurance-wise, which it really should be longer because you're not completely out of the woods at that five-day mark. And what if you don't have insurance? It is extremely expensive. Um, I believe it's upwards at about $1,000 a day mm-hmm. self-pay. And not all insurance covers this. Is that- That's correct. So it's hard. You get a lot of phone calls from people that don't have insurance, and they're asking us where to go. I want to detox, and they're in bad shape on the other end of the phone. And there's very little resources that you can give them. Um, do you guys take Medicaid? Yes, we do. That's a five day stay for Medicaid. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I didn't. Medicare I didn't is ten that. days, okay. which is pretty awesome. But yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I need to start doing that. I'm our case manager here as well. So. That's awesome. That's why I was asking about the what the Virtue Center did earlier oh, because. Yeah. I'm like, we are always looking for different resources that we can give. Yeah, and yeah. there's like already so many hurdles right. to getting help. And so many want outpatient. So many are like, they don't want to, you know, they have jobs. They're like, I can't afford to keep my house if I'm in a rehab. And that poses another obstacle. So, so many want outpatient rehab. Wow. Thank you so much for what you do. Good luck you continuing to your RN. Will you stay yes. at this facility? And I believe so. Yeah. And, and if not there, I definitely want to stay in substance use. Good for you. Yeah. Thank you for everything that you do. Thanks for listening to Hope Ahead, where we share stories of help and hope for people facing addiction and mental health challenges right here in our community. You can find more information by visiting thevirtuecenter.org or you can find Hope Ahead and the Virtue Center on Instagram and Facebook.
must remind ourselves that life is transient to breathe the ambience. So when we reach the end, do we wake up again?